RehabMyPatient.com has had a massive update. 1,000 strength and conditioning exercises have been added to the library for you to prescribe to your patients. Pictures, videos, fully customizable text, deliverable by email and WhatsApp. What is not to love? Go to RehabMyPatient.com forward slash PhysioMatters for a three-month free trial on us. So welcome back to Chewing It Over with myself, Justin Lin, um, and with Mick Hughes. So Mick, um, tell us, why is rehab after ACL reconstruction so important? And do we need to be specific about it? Um, good question, Justin. Uh, it's super important um, that we get really high quality rehabilitation after ACL injury, um, not just uh, reconstruction, but ACL injury as a whole, because we certainly know that uh, reconstruction is not the only choice, which is probably a, a very big, deep rabbit hole we could go down, but just for the sake of <laughs> our, our time this morning, we'll probably focus yeah. on, on reconstruction. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's vital. Um, yeah, you think about the ACL injury itself is a, is a big insult to the knee um, with a lot of trauma, um, a lot of swelling, a lot of pain, um, yeah, bone bruising, concomitant injuries that may occur to the meniscus. So there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on inside, inside the knee, which ultimately can lead and often does lead to arthrogenic muscle inhibition, which is devastating to, to the knee and to try and get that quadricep muscle to fire back up again. Um, and then put on top of that surgery, um, with, often within a short time frame. Um, so you have like two traumas to the knee and obviously two doses, unfortunately, of, of muscle inhibition. And the muscle inhibition just doesn't really restore back normally very well. And, you know, com compound that often with a, a reluctance to do uh, open chain exercises that truly isolate the quad. And we're kind of thrown into a really what I like to call a crappy roundabout where you've got really weak quads that can't protect the knee joint. Um, that often leads to pain and disability, um, stiffness, soreness, um, poor capacity to exercise. And that just continues to lower that person's function. And then, yeah, they go to exercise again and they go round and round and round on this really crappy roundabout, as you can imagine. So, you know, like if, Rehab's just key, and especially rehabilitation in those early, you know, twelve weeks is really, really important that we we nail that rehabilitation to set them up for a, a smoother transition back to the things that they love to do. Um, yeah, I'm conscious of time, and I just probably could talk all day on this. That's topic, right. Just, yeah. Uh, ultimately, it's um, yeah, it, it's a it's a really important feature to get the best of, out of the person so they can actually go back. To, to the sports that they love to do or the activities that they love to participate in. And yes, surgery does stabilize the knee again, but it's it's less than half the job of, of getting this person back to doing the things that they love to do. 100%. I think that's a perfect answer to that question. There are a lot of things that I wanted to pick up on, but obviously with time and with your upcoming topic uh, talk as well, this might be something that we can uncover a little bit later. Um, we know that ACL rehab starts right after the injury. Um, so in that case, with regards to conservative versus ACLR, maybe let's start a bit more on ACL uh, rehab, um, sorry, reconstruction first. Is there a perfect candidate or what's the ideal candidate for an ACL 
reconstruction surgery based on your experience or based on uh, some, some of the evidence that we have um, yeah, up yeah. until now? Um, probably probably the, the the best candidate really, it, it truly is, and it's that person that's presenting with recurrent instability um, is probably the prime candidate. Um, some would argue that, um, and probably rightfully so, to be honest, that um, another important candidate is someone who wants to return back to pivoting and twisting sports, young, young person in particular. Um, and the, probably the younger they are, the, probably the more important it is. Um, you know, we talk about uh, young, typically young in, in, in our, our yeah, ACL literature because up until now, we probably didn't see too many ACL injuries occurring below the age of 14. But unfortunately, now we are seeing a growing number of young kids um, as young as five and six, you know, tearing wow. their ACLs, having to have, have reconstruction. And that's, that's a really problem area. Once again, we could talk for days on this. But, um, mm. you know, for me, it's really hard to, especially at a, at a, like I'm looking after a 10-year-old at the moment who's, who's had an ACL reconstruction. Um, and just mentally for these kids, they don't have the capacity to slow down. And, you know, if you've got a 10-year-old kid just, you know, ultimately living their best life as a 10-year-old should without an ACL and pivoting, twisting sports, and um, they just don't have a foresight to the future to slow down. So some, sometimes, and I, and I would certainly agree, this is probably the best treatment strategy is to reconstruct because you ultimately yeah. are protecting that, that knee. Yes, you'd argue that another joint trauma is not good on a 10-year-old kid who probably doesn't know how to rehabilitate very well either. Yeah. You're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. But at least yeah. you're stabilising that knee and not letting yeah. the kid run around on an ACL deficient knee. As they do get older, um, you know, they probably have a little bit more mental capacity to sort of rehabilitate well and slow down. So, you know, you're 16, 17, you know, 18, 19-year-old male or female yeah. sort of got better understanding there. But they often want to go back to these high-risk sports, um, basketball, soccer, football. Um, mm. you know, in Australia, AFL is huge. Um, yep. And that's a, it's a 360-degree sport with lots of jumping and landing and really high demand on the knee. So... You know that that's where, and you're looking at the literature. That's probably yeah the best treatment treatment option. Um, you know, mm. Some would argue once again, really that you know you can pivot and twist without an ACL. But I've also tried to rehabilitate a lot of you know 18 to 20 year olds without uh, an ACL back to sport, and I'll, I probably would say I'm, I'm less successful in in doing right. it non-operatively than I am successful in in those that have a reconstruction. So. Yes, yeah. the literature may, may say that, you know, people can return back to pivoting, twisting sports without an ACL, but I've also seen a number of people fail that pathway and end up having a reconstruction. So, yeah, um, yeah. so ultimately you sort of come back to that, the, the best candidate is someone's having regular instability episodes and yeah. countering all that, all that age-related stuff. I had a 66-year-old lady who for, for 12 months and a lot of non-operative rehab still had instability episodes. And I was, mm. you know, when I met her for the first time and she had, um, you know, a number of physios looking after her for a while and, you know, I just sort of looked at her rehab and I thought, oh, well, your rehab kind of sucks. That's probably why you're still having a lot of symptoms. So let's let's rehab for three months and let's get you back and I could be really confident saying we don't have to have a reconstruction. And, and we, yeah. we did really good rehab for three months and she still had instability episodes in her daily life. So I was like, well, yeah. you know, you are a true instability um, you know, you, do you have true instability within your knee and you probably are, yeah, so it's surgery is going to be best for you. So 
yeah, yeah. so it's 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 a, definitely a case by case basis, and, and you probably absolutely. Need, um, but but ultimately, it's probably the instability um, episodes. Yeah. The, yeah. the problem is, it's how many instability episodes can you tolerate, especially in a young person, before you say enough's enough. Um, yeah, I've heard I've heard cases of physios down here persisting on in, um, uh, uh, non-operative rehab in the presence of at least a dozen instability episodes, and um, and despite good rehab, they're just being really stubborn and and continuing to do um, yeah. rehabilitation without without surgery, and, and ultimately leads to really poor outcomes. So yeah, yeah it's um yeah it, it's it's a really it's a, it's mm. one of the toughest areas uh, for me uh, as a physio and, and probably physios across the board is to <clears throat> to try and be able to predict who's going to be more successful. Yeah, um, is that why more and more Sorry to interrupt. Is that why more and more people, or certainly here in the UK, they do sort of like that watchful waiting? So yes, we know that you you have got some episodes of instability. Try rehab for let's say three to six months, and if it truly fails, then let's go for surgery. Do you think that's probably one of the better sort of solution to go forward from now with all yeah, the evidence uh, that we have? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like in. For the vast majority of people, that should be the choice that's put on the table to them or the, the mm. offer that's put down on the table. Um, mm. You know, the paid professional athlete who goes, he needs to go back to Premier League soccer or, a, you know, a, a level of football or um, sport that, you know, pays their wages and earns them a living for a period of time. Mm. Sure, like, you know, they, these, these people have got very tight careers and they've got, you know, they don't have the often have the time to wait and see because that wait and see approach is is effectively you know, taking three to six months out of their career length, which you know ultimately mm. can make or break their salaries. But the the ninety nine percent of us who who aren't paid in any way to train or play absolutely should be offered um, rehabilitation first and and high quality rehabilitation, mm. not just a whole heap of straight leg raises and and TheraBand exercises yeah. and, and balance exercises, you know, a, a good rehabilitation program for someone that's had an ACL injury should look no different to a, a general resistance training program that a healthy adult or a healthy adolescent should do with, yeah. you know, high, you know, low rep ranges, heavy weight ranges, once the knee's settled and calm, of course, yeah. it usually takes a good month, month to six weeks for that to get back to a quiet stage. Yeah, but yeah. once that knee, knee is quiet, it should look no different to a, um, yeah, a regular strength and conditioning program and periodized over the next, you know, two to three months to truly get that, that knee rehabilitated to a point where they can make a better choice about the treatment moving forward with ultimately yeah. surgery coming into the discussion uh, at, a, at a later date. Of course, there's yeah, people that have got repairable meniscus injuries yeah. that, that kind of once again override that because you want to preserve the meniscus as well. So, of course. yeah, it's, it's never it's never an easy conversation when you make Of course, yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> that's, that's, why, that's why I have 45-minute consult times to you know, walk, walk yeah. through all these um, you know, choices with people. Yeah, because it does seem like we need to consider their own scenario as well. What are they hoping to get back to? Um, it's definitely an important component to discuss. I definitely want to get a bit more detail onto what a high quality rehab entails. Because maybe when I was at uni, I was told, you know, you start with swelling management, range of movement, strength, power. Surely it's more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. Look, the first month, it's get 
get the knee calm and quiet, have a way possible. And it usually takes, from what I've seen clinically, probably a good six weeks for um, the swelling to reduce, the quads to you know, restore back to a really good level that can tolerate loads um, and get most of the range of movement back. So, you know, that's where physio skill sets, uh, uh, that's, our, that's our bread and butter. That's what we are really, really good at, um, reducing pain, restoring range of movement. So, um, yeah, like, you know, massage, cryotherapy, TENS if you want to use it, any of the electrotherapies, I guess, if you want to use it to a certain yeah. degree. Um, you know, uh, basic quad setting exercises, you know, straight leg raises, terminal knee extensions, um, the towel squashes, calf pumps, you know, all the yeah. stuff that we are really good at that you can give to someone who's effectively day one post-op, all the stuff that we're, we're good at. Mm. Once that person's sort of pass through that process and you're kind of and, and on average it roughly takes about six weeks some some a bit quicker some a bit later but once the, the the knee has got down to a grade one swelling so on a swipe test where you sweep upwards through the medial gutter and you and you wash down the swipe down the the lateral component of the knee compartment of the knee you know if you if you if you're seeing that fluid brush back on the downswipe, that's that's a grade one. And if you've got grade one or less, that yeah, you know, that's a good sign the swelling's on its way out. And and what you're okay. doing at the moment's you know being well tolerated. Um, rough rule of thumb: if you can do ten straight leg raises without a lag, and if you've got full knee extension and at least 120 degrees flexion, that that's technically a, a quiet knee that that's ready to to try some loading. Um, from there, you know, pick an exercise that you like, you know, knee extension, hamstring curl, leg press, squat. Um, you know, for me, I keep it in these early stages from roughly six weeks through to 10, 10 weeks. So about a month worth of programming, I'll try and keep it bilateral um, to share the load because that knee is still pretty load intolerant. It's not, of course. it's not really yeah, truly happy to accept a lot of heavy one-legged loads yet. Um, and it, you'll probably find that it'll, it'll quickly swell up on you again. So I like to share the load for the first month um, in a lot of bilateral tasks, as I, as I just mentioned before, with some, mm. you know, lighter, light, you know, some higher rep ranges around the 12 to 15 reps uh, per set. So three to four sets, 12 to 15 reps, um, three times to four times a week, basically every other day. Uh, every other day, and and those days in between are really good watch and wait days to see yep. how the knee will, will respond. If the knee responds really positively, then that's great. Re reload again of the course. day after. Um, yeah. Have another rest day. See how the knee responds. Have a, have a, if it responds positively, go again. If the knee doesn't respond, then we have an extra rest day. Maybe dial back the weight. So. That, that's where it's important to have these discussions. If you're sending someone away with a program, it's don't try and train twice a day now, like what you did in the first month, um, you know, or three times a day with all those easy bed exercises. You know, this is a day on, day off, and that yeah. day off's a, a watch and wait. Um, so that's the first month that takes us roughly through to 10 weeks. After 10 weeks, we then probably transition into a little bit more single leg work, such as mm. obviously single leg, single leg neck extensions, single leg hemi curls, single leg leg press, Bulgaria split squats, RDLs, the list goes on. Um, mm. Keeping that rep range up around that same same volume of work, you know, yep. making the knee sort of do that same work. Um, and that, you know, that takes us through to three, three and a bit months. Um, pretty simple stuff. And, and of course, if you wanted to, 
you know, one, if the person was really eager to get back to running or jumping, you know, you could probably start around that 12-week post-injury mark if they've been tolerating things really well. You could probably start flirting with things like skipping or using a skipping rope or doing some yep. pogos. Um, you might even, you know, try some, you know, little box jumps. Um, you know, you might try some little little simple hops and lands or a mm. single leg step jump and land. Um, once again, if, if you've got more time to play with, you, you might even transition them back into some some running, some straight line running. Um, mm. The key thing for me is trying to rehab and drag out that first three months because we we, are, we certainly are seeing a, a body of literature out there that's starting to show that the ACL can can heal. Um, and, and if we can be part of that, uh, process. If that person is one of these lucky, lucky people that's showing signs mm. of healing and recovering, then we're, we're going to see that clinically about the 12 week mark with um, a change in how the Lockman feels, Lockman test feels. Mm. Um, and then on, on such, you know, like if you had easy access to MRI, you'd certainly see a changing of the ligament, um, pro, you know, the ligament makeup with inside the knee. You're going to see a changing and remodeling of that ACL. It won't mm. look perfect um yeah look far from far from its former glory um to mm. at least the 12 12 month mark if we're being honest but um at mm. three months you should see a change and, and what it may appear to be like is actually a partial tear um, and it may even be reported as a partial tear um compared to you know that day one post injury and it's reported mm. as an acute acute complete rupture of the acl um, yeah so that that certainly is is something that i i work towards um but that, that's effectively in my programming. That's probably how it looks. Um, mm. yeah, it's no, no, nothing fancy, but uh, it, it yeah. certainly does the job. 100%, yeah. I think from my experience, it's all about doing the foundations right um, rather than doing all these fancy exercises. I think thinking from a principal point of view, check check the swelling, make sure that it's quiet. Like you said, quads really, really important and then see and make the decision again. I think from what you, you were saying, it, it was from the Canon trial um, in 2023. Is that right? That said that, yes, ACL has got potentially a potential to heal. From, my, um, from what I remember, is it 50% of the people in that study that has shown? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so right? they did a, they, yeah, so Steph, Bill, Steph Philbay and colleagues as well. Um, yes, I think it was 20, end of 2022, that paper came out. Um, yeah. They, they, they basically did a um, reanalysis of of the um, uh, the delayed. Let me get this right. The delayed uh, no, the rehab group. Um, the rehab group alone, and they found that those that were um, so they looking at the Canon trial, we had 120 participants. You know, half of them basically went into surgery. The other half um, had the option of delayed reconstruction. Um, but you know, by, the, by the time five years rolled around, um, 60% had effectively walked in, had, had mm. gone into surgery. By the end of two years, 50% had gone into surgery. By, by five years, 60% mm. had gone into surgery, leaving 50% and 40% respectively at the mm. end of two and five years. Um, so they reanalyzed the rehab alone group. Um, and they, at two years, they, they'd found that 50% of, of that group. Um, so ultimately, what's that? You know, we're, we're looking at. 15, 16 participants um, had healed. 
um, or at two years, which is probably mm. why yeah that rehab alone group was doing really well in the whole scheme of things, and and why mm. yeah they were continuing to you know continuing to live their best life with in the rehab group because they, yeah. they effectively had healed. So yeah, fifty percent of the rehabilitation group alone had healed out of the cannon trial, and and that's without any forming formal bracing protocol yeah exactly um, you know look, looking at how they were managed earlier it was yeah let's just get you into rehabilitation there wasn't any mm. you know formalized bracing um so yeah that's where that that's where that's yeah. really good treatment, treatment choice emerging yeah. out of australia and this data is going to be published apparently later this year and then maybe cool. in, the, in the next month month or two the cross bracing protocol right um that, yeah, that, that's a formalised um, 12, 10 to 12-week bracing protocol. Um, and preliminary data out of that showed that healing rate or healing, the process of healing occurring, um, certainly not healed, but healing um, by three months was up around the 90% mark with a, a right. formal bracing protocol, which... Yeah. Um, which is four weeks locked at 90 degrees in a ROM brace, um, non-weight-bearing yeah. four weeks yeah. in a ROM brace. And then every every week you're extending that range out by 10 degrees, so going from 90 to 80 to 70 to 60 yeah. to 50 and so on until you get through back through to full range, um, yeah. which is roughly around, around about the 10-week mark. Um, and then you come out of the brace and, and yeah, can continue and then get re-examined at the 12-week mark. Um, that's um that that study design has has been around probably been they've been capturing data for the last twelve months and maybe more mm. and they're they're about to publish their results sometime this year um but the the presentation at a, at a recent conference that I attended that um yeah started to show some of that that early data was was really positive so yeah um it's yet to be re reproduced obviously yet to be published um so it's probably not get too excited I exactly. <laughs> Um, I personally haven't managed a patient yet, and those that I have um, sort of floated the idea with, unfortunately, they they felt that the the time in the bracing was going to be a challenge for them. They, yeah. they were, um, you know, laborious uh, workers, and mm. yeah, just didn't, have, didn't didn't have the luxury of four weeks in in a brace, or didn't feel like absolutely they to that, at that time. But mm. the, once again, the right individual in the right process. Um, exactly. It can yeah. be a really, really good option for some people out there. So, yeah, I um, yeah, I'm really excited by by what's to come and and why mm. uh, and to read that 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 paper when it's finally produced. Um, yeah. Because yeah, it could be a complete game changer. But um, absolutely. Look at the at the very least, you know, those that don't want to go down that really strict bracing protocol, um, yeah, they've still got a, a pretty good. There is some hope. Yeah. yeah it's a hope yeah it's, it's yeah i always say i always say to people give yourself a fighting chance you know maybe a toss of the coin chance that you will heal mm. just give yourself a fight, fighting chance so you know rehabilitate for 12 weeks give yourself a fighting chance you know and look see how the knee feels after 12 weeks if you don't yeah. like it um if you don't like how it feels then then maybe um consider surgery but if you love yeah. how it feels and um and you want to continue then yeah you've, you've got every right to continue to rehabilitate so. yeah yeah that's really good news actually and i think i couldn't help but think about some of the patients that i have managed personally like a lot of them maybe be because of the medical tradition background and they wanted yeah. to get surgery straight away uh, straight away but I, 
I think it definitely took some time to convince them and then telling them some of the reasons why. And so, some of them do have really good outcomes, you know, just doing mm. conservatively, even if they don't have, or especially if they don't have any goals to get back to high pivoting sports. And mm. they certainly enjoy their life right now. 100%. Yeah, that's really, really good. And I can't wait to read that paper again, which is coming out, did you say, uh, in it a should, few months' time? It should be. Yeah, so Dr. Cross and Steph Philbay. Um, so Dr. Cross is the, he's a sports physician here in Sydney, mm-hmm. Australia. Um, mm-hmm. Funnily enough, his dad's an orthopedic surgeon who operated a lot of knees back in the 80s, 70s, right. 80s and 90s. <laughs> so um, he's kind of like going against the grain. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, yeah, so he's a, he'll be the lead author, I understand. Um, yeah. And, yeah, Steph Philbay is part of that project who was part of the Canon trial who, who yeah. we just spoke about. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I'll, I'll be lucky enough to actually shoot a masterclass with her next month on, on this very, very topic. So I'm looking forward to that. But, yeah, from what I hear 100%. is that, um, yeah, that paper should be published in the next couple of months. And, and yeah, so watch, watch out for that one. Looking forward to that. Right. Mm. What to talk a bit more about return to sport? I mean, there has been loads of loads of research done on this. Um, we know that sort of like six to nine months, depending on where you read your literature, please correct me if I'm wrong, is where mm. we should expect them to get back to. I think previously there there has been a lot of chat, like we really need to get to nine months because every month less than not lesser than nine months would increase the risk of re-injury is that right yeah yeah so there's been a couple of a couple of papers in recent years that that show yeah for every month earlier than nine months the increase of of a second acl injury occurring um increases yeah quite significantly and depending on the paper that you read um but it's not it's not only those those you know two papers in particular um so uh, one showed 50 percent um increase um and another one showed it was like a seven times greater risk there was yeah, a couple of different ways they reported their numbers mm. but um there's also some great biomechanical work from ender king and colleagues out of sports sanitary through you know 2018 19 and 20 there's a couple of papers there that showed even at nine months a lot of a lot of athletes that are trying to return back to sport biomechanically that they have not restored their, their strength qualities and their power qualities in the way they move compared to healthy controls um, or even they're close to their other limb, healthy limb, by, by nine months. So, so yes, they, they may be strong. They might be mentally ready. They might have, yeah, great quad strength, hamstring strength, but, yeah, they, they certainly don't, um, you know, jump and land and cut and pivot and twist and turn as mm-hmm. good as you know, their un, unaffected leg and, and certainly compared to healthy controls that don't have that same great movement quality at nine months. So which yeah. once again probably is opening the door there for a second yeah. injury. So, yeah. so yeah, there, there's certainly some really strong data that this nine-month mark is, is probably a better um, target for people and a safer target. Um, mm. Once again, the discussions I have um, with my, you know, non and, and largely I look after non-professional athletes these days, mm. I, I often say don't even, um, yeah, I, I say aim for nine months, but yeah, realistically it's going to be 12 um, mm. because you're not getting, you're not getting, you know, even in a supported environment, nine months mm. is, um, is a really tough ask to restore of all of your strength qualities and you have to be super diligent and you have to basically, you know, train, train the house down for nine months. And, 
you know, most people will meet, you know, uh, you know, people that have got busy working lives and, um, you know, may have kids and family or work commitments mm. and, you know, university commitments. And you've got a lot of sort of things, you know, tugging you in different ways. And, you know, the rehabilitation process for a vast majority of people that aren't supported financially or aren't within a great club environment with 24-7, you know, physio, doctor, S&C support, you know, we just don't yeah. have it. So, I, I often say, look, you know, nine months would be a great goal and write that down and have that as a goal. So it's nice to write your goals down. But, you know, realistically, it's probably it's mm. probably going to be close to the 12 months and we're probably mm. seeing even a grow, growing number of people probably returning back to sport closer to 18 months um, in a non-professional setting. And there's definitely yeah. some emerging data there that um, people with this 12-month goal, a lot of people just aren't achieving this 12-month goal, but they are achieving... The return to sport goal sometime between year one and year two. Mm. Um, Kate, Kate Webster's done some great work there in the ACL mm. space and follow, following up with a, a large number of ACL patients mm. of, um, you know, their expectations certainly weren't met um, with, yeah, from day one post, post-op, their, you know, their 12-month goal unfortunately wasn't met. But, yeah, they were certainly returning back to sport a bit later than 12 months. So, um yeah, that's probably where we where we sit, and and certainly the conversation around coming back earlier than nine months really is reserved for that um, once once again, probably more so that paid professional athlete, and even still, you yeah. probably argue that someone that's that's young, you know, under the age of you know twenty five, still got a lengthy career potentially ahead of them, you know, if they're pushing hard and saying let's get back to sport around about the six month mark. Um, you, you'd probably be trying to sort of shift their goalposts a little bit closer to nine. Um, yeah. They still may come. They still may come under nine months, and, and sure, when you're in a, in a professional environment, that those things can happen. But it comes at a risk because biologically, at you know before nine months, we've still got a lot of graph maturity to occur. Yeah. But yeah. When you weigh up all those other factors that that are, that are a part of professional sport, then you know that's probably one of those risks that the person's willing to take. Um, mm but you'd still encourage a, a, a later, someone who's probably later on in their career. And I've seen a number of cases, someone who's maybe in their last or second last year of their career, mm-hmm. um, returning returning back to sport about the six month mark so they can sort of finish off their career on a high. Um, I certainly saw that. There was a, a, a well-known case of a professional Australian rules football player a couple of years ago, tore his ACL in March in the preseason, last preseason game before the competition uh, started, um, rehabilitated throughout the entire season and came back to play in the semifinals, round one of the semifinals. So they, they, he missed effectively the whole season, um, played, played all the preseason yeah. and, and, played, and played all the postseason and they went to the grand final. So he played three postseason games um, only, you know, five and a half months after his ACL reconstruction, but he was into his you know, last to second last year. Of his yeah. So, um, yeah. So there are cases like that too. So of you course, know, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Take every case as it comes, but but the vast majority of people absolutely should yeah. you know, should not should not be aiming to to get back earlier than nine months. Um, yeah. And realistically, they're probably closer to twelve. My my message to people who do you know train the house down and and you know are ticking all the boxes and are you know strong and moving well is that you know look if you if you pass all the tests at eight months that that I'm happy with. You know, mm. use that last month to basically train, train unrestricted, get more training into your system, um, work on those little finer parts of the game in a very safer, controlled way. Yeah. Um, rather than, you know, just, you know, yeah, run the risk of, of 
um, doing all that great work. So yeah, that's kind of where that, that conversation um, of course. Go, go, goes to me because you'll meet the occasional person who absolutely kills it um, and, that, and you'll be really struggling to, to justify why they can't go back to sport other than yeah. you know, an arbitrary, arbitrary time value. Um, yeah, but, but that, 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 that's where you can sort of pull out the old nine months. Um, yeah, of so. course. Yeah, well, I don't know how true is this, but I've read somewhere on Twitter like one of the football players in Bayern Munich, I think Torres ACL, I think um, four months ago, and I think he probably got back to training in like four to five months. Like, mm. yeah. I don't know how true is it, but like you said, there will be that guy that you know excels really, really well in the rehab. Plus, he's in a really supportive environment, so that potentially can happen as well. Um, so yeah, I think. We also know that time is just one factor to consider. And I, th- I think with the research, we move more towards like more criteria-based progression. Um, so things like limb symmetry in- index, the ability to jump um, at a s- certain level. Um, is there a specific criteria or set of criteria that you use um, clinically um, to guide that progression? Yeah, yeah. I actually did a um, workshop on it last night, so you probably picked the, the great time. So <laughs> it's still fresh. Um, no, it's it's for for me. Um, it's a series of of tests that I, I put put them through. The research will probably say that there's no. Um, it's probably it's a bit mixed um, with research uh, with the discharge testing. One that there's probably no uniform and consensus on what is. Uh, what is a good um, return to sport battery of tests. Um, probably what is clear is that if you pass a series of tests and you use a 90% um, threshold of, of limb symmetry index or a 90% score on whatever test you use, um, you reduce the risk significantly of a graft re-rupture. Um, but we know um, contralateral second injuries to the yeah, second yep. injuries you know, that, are, that occur to the contralateral side um that they, they do they do occur and that's probably not well accounted for um in some of the discharge testing so that's probably what the sort of asterisk there is that yes you may mm-hmm. pass the tests um you you are reducing the risk you're not taking it down to zero um you still have a risk of re-injury to your graph but you're certainly re-reducing that risk quite a lot um mm-hmm. uh can't think of the number i know one paper said about 60 percent less that was from webster and hewitt if you Past a series of tests, you're reducing the risk significantly, but it doesn't take it down to zero. And I think that's an important message we, we say to our patients because I think there's often this perceived um, safety there if you pass the tests and if you if you kind of you know, pump up their tyres and say this won't happen again and you're, you're bulletproofing someone, which is a common mm. word used these days, um, I think you're setting yourself up for a bit of drama later. So for me, uh, quad, quad symmetry index and hamstring, quads and strength, Quads and hamstring strength are really key, especially quadricep strength. Yep. Um, not only are you searching for limb symmetry index here, but you also are trying to chase a high value of peak torque to, to body weight. Um, of course. And traditionally tested on an isokinetic machine, but you can get um, some relevant figures from an isometric test at 90 degrees. Um, the numbers that you're searching there for are um, three Newton metres per kilogram of body weight uh, for males minimum um, and anywhere between 2.5 to 2.8 for females on their affected side, but also roughly within 10% of the other side as well so to get that 90% limb symmetry index. So that's that's both quads and hams. Um, the, 
the peak torque to body weight for, for hamstring isn't as high as three, um, anywhere around the two mark uh, for, for males and 1.5 to 1.75 for females would be sort of those kind of figures there. Because that's, that's the massive limitation to limb symmetry index. You could mm. be symmetrical. You could lay within yep. 10% of the other side, but your output is crap. So a perfect example of this is the single leg hop for distance, which is often a common test and I, I use it. Um, mm. But if you hop a metre forward, say like you're a, a metre 70, you know, football athlete, you hop a metre forward um, on your um, healthy leg, you hop 95 centimetres on your ACL leg, um, you've got a 95% limb symmetry index. And if you use those two scores there, you know, you high five yourself and yeah. away you go. But that, yeah. that score is terrible for someone that's so athletic and so powerful. So you, you want to also be looking at the distance covered or the magnitude um, uh, produced um, mm. on the testing as well. So don't always chase that 90% score. Also look at the distance covered or the height jumped as yeah. well. So um, that's an important thing that we often overlook. Um, of course. So, yeah, so quad strength, hamstring strength, for me, um, I probably have changed the way I, I do my battery of tests compared to a few years ago with the right. you know, advent, um, yeah, with the ease of um, and accessibility of force plate data, um, and mm -hmm. certainly seeing some some work from Aspatar showing that vertical jump is a is a really important um, feature there that we should be looking at, both the counter movement jump but also a single leg vertical jump. Right. Um, because the asymmetry C, particularly in a single leg vertical jump, often don't get picked up on a horizontal jump. Um, and there's some nice papers out there showing that some people can hop and do a really good horizontal jump and land symmetrically yeah. and, and land with a good distance and, and land also within a 95% limb symmetry and you'd be going, mm. great, this person's... But they, they find a way to land differently when they hit the ground biomechanically and they'll often cheat through their hip on their ACL side. So they won't flex their knee very well. Yeah. They won't absorb that force very well on their ACL side. Now mm. put them on a, a force plate and get them to do a vertical jump and that changes drastically. And there's been yeah. a paper show, show their limb symmetry index now has changed to about um, as low as 70% limb symmetry index, despite being able to hop with a 95% limb symmetry index on a, on a horizontal hop. Um, and uh, the work from Aspatar has sort of shown that about the 70% mark. Um, so, uh, yeah, 30% difference between limbs and some other, other work has sort of shown that figure to be about 80%, um, a 20% difference between limbs. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite drastic. And, and these are, these are athletes, that, these are nine to 12 month athletes who are also you know, pushing to return back to sport, yet they can't jump vertically and absorb that landing from a vertical way, which is often how you injure your ACL, you know, landing mm. from the jump, um, and also to a requirement of sport for a lot of a lot of people, you know, jumping up to header a ball in football, you know, landing from a jump in basketball, AFL, netball, mm. whatever sport it, it may be, there's a lot of vertical components to that that sport, not the horizontal one. So yeah. that, that for me has been a game changer in how I um, yeah. look at uh, my ACL. So definitely do those uh, double leg and single leg counter movement jumps. Yeah. Um, as, as well as some of the horizontals. But I, I definitely have trimmed down my horizontal testing to just a hop for distance. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm looking for the, the height of the person. So if the person's a yeah. 70, I want, I want them to hop their height forward or, or at least 90% of their height. Yeah. Um, 
Um, that is crazy. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then I think, and then I like the side hop test because it's a nice 40 centimeter height side hop test where the person hops medially and laterally for 30 seconds okay. continuously over a 40 centimeter line. Some okay. nice um, normative values out there 55 plus for males, 45 plus for females within 10% um, of, of either leg. Um, it's a good test of capacity to go back and forth for 30 seconds. It burns them out, but it's also a good sign of their confidence to be able to bounce left and right, left and right yep. continuously, and also a good appreciation of their plyometric ability as well. If they can bounce continuously, that's that's a good sign they've got some of that plyometric capacity. So yeah. it ticks three boxes. It's a, it ticks three boxes off in one one test for me. So it's a good or uh, it's a really good one um, to do. Yes. So. Yeah, so they're, they're my sort of physical tests that I do, um, but also make sure they do an ACL RSI questionnaire, uh, yeah. a TSK11 questionnaire, and I'll also too give them IKDC and um, COS ADLS questionnaire as well, just to get a good sense of their overall um, knee health and, and how they're feeling in everyday life. Yeah. So, um, uh, well, like, are, yeah, just from this this is going to change so many of um, our viewers, listeners um, practice as well. Certainly mine. Cause um, from what you said, like I've actually never thought about the vertical jump and actually it's their height rather than the LSI. Cause it's quite superficial just to consider things like that. So yeah, this is a real insight that I'll definitely uh, take it on and try to see if we, if we can implement it. Um, Mick, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on um, and it's definitely an honour for me to pick your brains with all things ACL. Um, we know that you're big um, We know that you're big on social media. You're always so kind in sharing your information, including the one and only Melbourne ACL Guide. Um, is there um, a place where um, our viewers, watchers can find you and they can appreciate more of the work that you've done? Yeah, um, yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's nice of you to say uh, and give me the opportunity to come and share some, um, yeah, some great information. I, you know, yeah, a lot of this great stuff gets hidden behind paywalls and I've, I've been definitely been given a great opportunity over the last few years to certainly sort of dive into the literature a little bit. But um, yeah, I, I share a lot of information um, both on my Instagram channel, um, mickhughes.physio is my, my handle there. Um, Facebook, you can find me on the same handle. Um, YouTube, I share some videos there. Um, Twitter, um, a bit different. It's Mick W Hughes. Uh, it's my handle there. Um, they're, they're the main sort of Mick Hughes sort of platforms. I've got a website, um, www.mickhughes.physio. Um, once again, you can find some stuff there. And then there's also learn.physio as well, which is my, my baby in terms of sharing both paid and also to a lot of free content there for, for people to digest as well. So lots, yeah. of, um, lots of places you can find that stuff. Yeah, you've been blessing the ACL community with all the good stuff. Well, certainly the ACL, um, the Melbourne ACL guy, because that has definitely improved my knowledge on ACL a lot. So thank you for that. Um, you are, um, you are coming on Therapy Life on the twenty fourth of um, June, um, yes. for a session on ACL reconstruction rehab. With without touching too much of some of the stuff that you are going to tell us. Well, although you might have shared a bit more from our chat just now. Maybe give us a bit of a teaser on what you might touch on um, so that our viewers can know yeah. a little bit. Yeah, um, so in my, it goes for about 45 minutes and I'll allow for hopefully a few questions there, but um, my, my talk's really gonna be about trying to find the very simple ways to improve ACL 
outcomes, uh, ACL, and specifically for this one, just for time demands, um, ACL reconstruction outcomes. Um, I've titled it the four simple ways you can improve ACL reconstruction outcomes. Um, looking at just really the, the very simple yet high quality ways you can better your patients results and get them back to their, their previous levels of sports and, and get them back to the, the things they love to do and these these four things in particular the things that I've just clearly seen and over the years um, and, and meeting people for the first time have been through a series of physios or haven't had successful outcomes and you hear their stories and it's like okay well you're not doing this, this, and this, you know, these are just simple evidence-based low-hanging fruits that we can pick from the apple tree. Why are people always sort of going so high up that, you know, the yeah. shiny tree, you know, looking for those really bright, shiny, fun, uh, cool things to do when you just got all this great, great stuff hanging low that you could pick and choose from. So yeah, that, that's my um, presentation's all about to show you those very four simple things to get the best out of your patients. Absolutely. Um, I'll definitely be the first one to watch that um, as well on the 24th of June. So tickets are still available for those that um, are interested. It will be associated with this video. Mick, thank you once again for joining us um, today. Um, I know it's quite early on your side, so definitely appreciate you taking the time out and waking a bit early no, today. No, no. Anytime, <laughs> it's been great. Thanks very much for the opportunity. It's been great. Test. Don't guess. We all know that. We want you to test better. Val Dynamo is a dynamometer specifically designed for MSK Healthcare. It isn't a repurposed crane gauge or an inaccurate grip measure. Push, pull, grip, and more. Plus, if that wasn't enough, its app for recording and storing the data is just brilliant. valdhealth.com forward slash dynamo for the only measurement device you'll ever need in clinic.